Luke chapter 1. And we are looking at uh, Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song when she comes and visits Elizabeth after it has been announced to her by the angel Gabriel that she uh, was going to conceive against all odds and all human possibility. Um, I was reminding my boys this week that virgins don't conceive. You're like, wait a minute, I didn't think we were those kind of Presbyterians. Virgins don't conceive. Mary knew that. Mary responded to the news that she was going to conceive by saying, how can this be? Mary knew that virgins don't conceive. And the angel said to her, nothing will be impossible with God. That's the point. That's the point of creation out of nothing. That's the point of those miracles in scripture, most notably the virgin birth and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. With God, nothing will be impossible. And so Mary makes haste and she goes to visit her cousin or perhaps her aunt to bring the news. And so we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 1. We're going to focus in a special way at verses 46 to 55, what is properly called Mary's Magnificat. But for the sake of context, I'd like us to look beginning in verse 39 and read down to verse 56. Luke 1, 39 to 56. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Now Luke, having almost certainly um, had conversations with Mary about the things that happened and, and having labored to give a very ordered and accurate account of what happened, relays, and he is the only one of the gospel writers that gives us this, he relays to us this account. He writes, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months 
and returned to her whom the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is almost without debate that the greatest Christmas song ever written was Handel's Messiah. Um, who doesn't love seeing a magnificent orchestral um, display and execution of Handel's Messiah. And as most of you probably are very familiar with the content and the structure of Handel's Messiah, you will know that it is divided into three sections that looks at those incarnation songs of Isaiah. We've already looked at Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and it spans everything from the humiliation of Christ to the exaltation of Christ. Um, Handel sees in, in what is a sweeping vision the, the unified glory of the incarnation of the promised Messiah from his humble estate in being knit together in the womb of the virgin to his exalted state in glory. Now we have already seen, as we've looked at some of the inspired Christmas songs in scripture, we have already seen uh, that song about anticipation, Isaiah 1, 1 through 10. And we have seen that uh, Christmas song about realization. We've looked at uh, the next song here in Luke chapter 1, Zachariah's Benedictus, where he is recognizing that the Lord has brought to fulfillment everything that he promised through the prophets. But before Zechariah's song, there is Mary's song. And Mary's song is really the first of the inspired incarnation songs in Scripture. It has been rightly noted that Mary's song is the last of the Old Testament psalms and the first of the Christian hymns in Scripture. It is the first of four uh, incarnation songs in Luke's gospel. You have Mary's Magnificat. There is uh, Zachariah's Benedictus. Then there's the angels in Excelsis Deo. And then there is Simeon's Nuke Dimittis here in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. But Mary's song is unique in that Mary is the one who was given that great and undeserved blessing of carrying the long-awaited Redeemer. She would be the one that every believing woman, every one of God's covenant members was waiting for from that first promise given to Eve in the garden that God was going to give her a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And Mary is now realizing in the fullness of redemptive history that she would be the one who would carry the Redeemer. And so as she goes to carry this news to Elizabeth, she breaks out into what is essentially a three-part hymn focusing largely on the humility of the incarnate Son of God. The humiliation that would would enshroud everything about the Redeemer that God had knit together in her womb. Now, before we look at the threefold division, here in a second, I want to say a few things about Mary's uh, trip to Elizabeth. We don't know why she went. It might have been the shame of being in the town in which she lived because everyone there knew that virgins don't conceive. 
And so her reputation would have been marred. And there is the possibility that her parents sent her away for a time to alleviate some of the shame of the perception that she had conceived out of fornication. Or it could be that Mary was heading to Elizabeth's house because she had heard the news about John the Baptist and she had realized that God had done something for Elizabeth that he had done for her. Remember, Elizabeth was barren and she was far past the age of conceiving. Mary was a virgin and was far past the possibility of conceiving. And yet, as the angel had told her, with God, nothing will be impossible. And there is the likelihood that Mary was going to share in the experience of the impossibility of, uh, of what should have never happened to them happening because of the power of God. And whatever the case, Mary, we're told, had believed the message from the Lord. Notice the end of verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now this is marvelous. Mary believed when Zechariah did not believe. Mary believed a harder truth that she as a virgin would conceive. And Mary's greatness is really a result of the fact that she took God at his word. When Elizabeth comes to praise her, notice what she says in verse 45, leading into this song. Elizabeth praised Mary and said, blessed is, is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, I've noted that this song divides really into three segments. The first is Mary's praise. The second is Mary's humility. And the third is Mary's hope. Mary's praise, Mary's humility, and Mary's hope. Now notice the response of Mary. She has just been uh, received by her cousin Elizabeth. She has realized the enormity of the blessing, and this is so important. She has understood the enormity of the blessing of God upon her, and her response is not to uh, sort of bring attention to herself. Her response is not to think more highly of herself than she ought to. Her first response is to praise God for what he had done and for who he is. Notice the outset of the Magnificat. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now this is important because we are so fickle that most of us, the first time we get a promotion or we come into some providential, beneficial condition or state in life, we, we tend to take just a little bit of glory to ourselves and fail to give all the glory to the Lord. Um, when I was 21 or 22 years old working as a chef at a restaurant on St. Simon's Island uh, in Georgia, I worked with a fellow chef who hated God, hated the gospel, hated me. And, um, and I mentioned to him once how, you know, we really have 
everything to be thankful to God for because nothing we do comes from us. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget the anger and the hatred he had. He said, everything that I have, I worked for. Everything I have, I've worked for. And I've replayed that over decades. That, that is what's in the heart of the natural man, whether he or she articulates that. It's in every unregenerate heart. Everything I have, I've worked for. I deserve this. I've applied myself more. I have parents that are better than those parents. I've been given these privileges, and I've made good on them. And yet Mary doesn't bring any glory to herself. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, why can Mary, who has been given a greater privilege than any human being who has ever lived, how can she do that? at that moment without bringing any glory to herself because Mary understood she needed a savior. Listen very carefully. The mystery of the Magnificat is not that Mary is going to be the mother of God. She will be the mother of the human nature of God incarnate. She will in that sense be rightly called the mother of God. The mystery of the Magnificat is that Mary understands that she needs a savior because she's a sinner. Listen to this. Charles Spurgeon says, Mary sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She knew she needed a Savior. She knew she needed God for her Savior. Listen very carefully. Spurgeon says, when we reach the highest point in our devotion, we still need a Savior. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is about as big a prayer as I can manage at present. Spurgeon says, often my soul prays with such earnestness, the dying thief's prayer, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Spurgeon says, like Mary, we still need a savior. We will sing about our savior. And even if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we cannot do without the blood of Jesus, constantly cleansing us from all sin. Don't miss this this morning. Mary will not speak another word until she confesses that she's a sinner who needs a savior and that she's praising God for providing that savior in the form of the child that has been knit together by the spirit in her womb. Um, you know, it's interesting, Mary... Throughout this, this great incarnation song does something wonderful. She, she calls together all these scriptures from all these different places in the Old Testament. We've already read this morning Hannah's song, and, and you probably noticed the similarities. That, those similarities about a God humbling those that are exalted and exalting those that are humble. But Mary is doing more than just reflecting on what God had done for Hannah. Mary is reflecting on all that God had said in the scripture. And if I can say this this morning, it's marvelous. Mary is a woman at 13 years old, most likely. That's how old she is here, most theologians believe. At 13 years old, she is a woman who is full of the word of God. She knows that she's a sinner because she knows the word of God. 
She knows what God has promised to do for sinners because she is full of the scriptures. She understands all of the divine mysteries and she understands it from the totality of the Old Testament. Listen to this, Phil Riken explains that Mary either quotes from or alludes to verses, listen, from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. That's amazing. There's nothing innovative about what Mary's doing. Mary can do what she can do because she is a woman of God's word. Now, there's a word there for teenagers, and there's a word there for adults. Uh, Mary is an example that you can, you can never be too young to learn scripture. By the way, just as an aside, you all do know that Jesus had to learn the scriptures in accord with his human nature. He didn't know everything by osmosis in his humanity. And, and the way in which he learned that scripture was that God gave him a mother who was herself from such a very young age full of his word. Believing his word, hoping in his word, trusting in it, meditating on it. You, you get the sense that, that Mary is, is just pouring scripture out of her in this praise. That's a mark of someone who, who is a true believer. Uh, true believers are those that love God's word, are full of God's word, think about God's word, speak God's word, pray God's word, and sing God's word. Mary is setting that example for us. She begins with this exultant praise. She's an example for us in anything good that God does for us, any physical blessing, material blessing, any spiritual blessings we have, that we would be a people that would turn our attention back to the Lord and recognize that all of it is from him. All of it is through him and all of it is unto him, as Paul says in Romans 11. Now, notice she recognizes not just who the Lord is, but what the Lord has done in this praise. Notice verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, Mary is going to do something very interesting here in her praise. She is going to speak about what God does using um, uh, the language of human anatomy. She's going to use Uh, three different descriptions of human anatomy to explain what theologians call an anthropomorphism. God uses these things to speak baby talk to us, Calvin said. He doesn't have eyes. He's infinite. He knows everything eternally. He doesn't have an arm. He has infinite power. And yet, Scripture often makes use of those things. And notice that Mary uses this anatomical language to speak of what the Lord does. She gives us an anatomy of God. God considers with his eyes, verse 48. She tells us in verse 51 what he does with his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And then notice, finally... She gives us a description of what he does with his mouth. Notice verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What Mary is doing, and the lesson for us this morning, is she has meditated deeply on all that God does in regard 
to all of his people and especially with regard to his redemptive kingdom. Notice this. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She understands that God has done something so marvelous. He has considered the needs of his people. He has done a work so marvelous that Mary can say, he has looked. He has looked. He has seen what was needed. He has turned his eye toward me. And at the end of the psalm, he has turned his eye and his helping arm to his covenant people. Um, Again, there's a lesson there for us. If we are not in the habit of praising God as we ought, it's because we're not reflecting on all that he sees and does um, in his church, among his people, in our lives. Um, You know, Mary forgets the shame of the public scorn for what has happened to her. Mary forgets the poverty that she lives in. She's very poor. She forgets all the infelicitous circumstances of her life, and she says, he has looked. His arm has done this. His mouth has spoken this. Now, Mary moves from that first movement of praise to a movement of humility. I want us to consider this and focus especially on this this morning. Really, the centerpiece of the Magnificat is the centerpiece of everything happening in Luke's narrative about Mary. Everything about what's happening to Mary is is humility. There's never a proud word on her mouth. There's never a proud thought in her heart. Um, Mary understands, as we've already said, that she's a sinner. She understands that she needs salvation. She understands that all that she has is from the Lord. And she understands that she is undeserving. Notice verse 48. She praises the Lord for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What she's saying is that, and that is, why me? Why should the Lord have chosen me? Why should I be the one that bears the Savior and brings him into the world? There's nothing about me that makes me fit for that. There's nothing in Mary's experience she can latch onto. She is poor. She comes from a lowly home in a very humble town, humble circumstances, and she has the humiliation of being shamed over being pregnant out of wedlock. And yet she praises God for looking on her humble estate Notice that theme of humility runs through the rest of her song. Notice verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Um, One of the sobering truths of scripture is that God exalts the humble and humbles those that exalt themselves. When I was a boy, my dad would press in on my sister and me that very important proverb, God, um, I'm sorry, pride goes before a fall. Pride will always go before a fall. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. 
It doesn't matter what positions you have. It doesn't matter what successes you've had. It doesn't matter what your lineage. It doesn't matter. If, if we allow pride to well in our souls, God will inevitably bring us down to nothing. He has a way of doing that. He does it to politicians. He does it to rulers. He does it to pastors. Um, notice Mary understands this. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Notice verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Think, she is saying this at the time when the Roman Empire is dominating the world, when Caesar has set himself up, when Herod has set himself up, when all of the Roman rulers have set themselves up to be the most powerful rulers in the history of the world to that point in time. And God has looked on a poor Jewish teenage virgin and has put the king of kings into her womb. And Mary understands that God is in the business of tearing down those that exalt themselves and raising up those who are humble. Now, there is a word there for us. Um, I have been in ministry long enough to have realized that humility is arguably one of the least exhibited virtues among believers. I'm, I'm not thinking of any of you particularly this morning. Thinking of myself. Um, we have a pride issue by nature. We, we, we want others to see us and revere us. We want others to praise us. We, we like to compare ourselves with others, what we've accomplished. You know, even if, if we would never verbalize it, those thoughts race through our minds. Well, they haven't done what I've done, and yet why are they over here? Because God exalts the humble and humbles those that exalt themselves. You know, we read this morning out of Philippians 2, but this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and humbling himself, being made in, in the likeness of human form, yet without sin, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now listen carefully. If the eternal, divine Son, who is the infinite God, could humble himself to such an extent that he would become, as it were, nothing in the womb of a poor peasant virgin in order to be nailed to a tree to save sinners who hated him by nature out of his great love for them, then we can let that mind be in us, which was also in Christ. See, here's one of the mysteries of Mary's song, and I don't want you to miss it. The mystery of Mary's focus on humility and humiliation is not to draw attention to Mary. It's to set the tone and tenor for everything that would mark the life and the ministry of her son, the Lord Jesus. Listen to this. When we think of the humility and the humiliation of Christ, 
I'm not sure there's a greater uh, definition of the humility and humiliation than we find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27. Listen to this. Um, in what did Christ's humiliation consist? The, the Westminster divines say, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. I want you to think about that. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. Just the fact that the eternal God who gives life and breath to everyone and everything who knit you together in your mother's womb, who fashions and shapes every individual intricately and personally, the one who right now gives you your breath and makes your heartbeat was born. And the humiliation of Jesus is seen in that the eternal son had to be born. There is no exaltation in that. That is him humiliating himself to the lowest place. The God who called the stars out by name. By the way, Genesis 1. When God makes everything and Moses is recounting the creation of the heavens and the earth, there, there's like a little throwaway verse that says, oh, also he made the stars. All of them. Every star he calls by name. Not one of them is missing. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power right now was knit together in the womb of the virgin and was humiliated by being born. And listen, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition. He was born in a peasant home. He was born to a peasant mother. She didn't even have enough for the proper sacrifice to consecrate him when she brought him to circumcise him. She had to opt for the poor person's offering of birds instead of the sacrifice she would bring if she had had means. He is born into a peasant home, that in a low condition. Listen to this. The divines say he was born and made under the law. He would have to be an Israelite. He would have to be born under the demands of God's law. The God who gave the law would have to be born under the law in order to keep the law for us who had broken the law. That's, that's humiliation for Jesus. That's humility for him. And then listen. His humiliation consisted in his undergoing the miseries of this life. We, we can't even begin to understand what it would have been like for Jesus to have been mocked by his own brothers and sisters. You have no idea. We, we can't even begin to understand what it would have meant for Jesus to be rejected constantly by the very people he had created when he entered into covenant with them through Abraham and then at Sinai to come to his own and his own not receive him to mock him, to deride him, to tell him he had been born out of fornication, to, to mock him for being a carpenter's son, to mock him for the truth that he brought with him from glory to reveal to them. And then the Westminster Assemblymen say that his humiliation consisted in his bearing the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Listen, I, I'm doing my best to explain to you that you ought to be humbled to the dust 
and I ought to be humbled to the dust when we think about the humility and humiliation of Jesus. That's, that's the point of this. He would take the lowest place in the womb of the lowest teenage virgin in Israel to begin that humiliation. And he would do that to provide the salvation for which Mary had already praised God. Now, this hymn I told you was three parts. Mary's praise, Mary's focus on humility, and then Mary's hope. Notice, notice verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Derek Thomas has um, cleverly said, Mary was a, a covenant theologian. Mary was a Westminster Shorter Catechism girl. She understood, she understood what God had promised in his covenant promises to his people. She understood that God was promising to fulfill those things, and she understood now that Christ was knit together in her womb, God was bringing those things to fruition. She understood that the hope for which the covenant people were called by God to be waiting, and the hope for which we ought to be looking back at and forward to was entirely bound up in Christ, the covenant-keeping Redeemer. Um, notice, notice that central to that hope is the idea of mercy. Notice back in verse 50. He who is mighty has done great things for me. His mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy. And then notice verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Um, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is God not pouring out the wrath on you that he ought to, or on me that he ought to, for all of our wickedness. And what Mary understands is that within those covenant promises, the covenant promise to Abraham, that God was going to be a God to us and to our descendants after us, that God was going to bless the nations, Mary understood that central to those covenant promises was God's promise of mercy. And that that mercy was sealed and secured through Christ. Now, what Mary didn't know, Mary didn't know a whole lot more than people think she knew. Um, Mary knew a whole lot more than many Christians today knew. But what Mary didn't see clearly is what would happen to her son. Mary saw with the eyes of faith what God had promised in the old covenant promises that he made to the covenant people. But Mary could not yet understand how God would secure that for us. But we get that when we see the cross, when we look at the cross, when we see the eternal son who knit together a body in the womb of the virgin, nailed to the tree, and we, we know that it's for our sin we know it's because of all the wickedness we've done. We know it's because of the blackness of our hearts.
that he went to the cross because we love wickedness by nature. We love sin by nature. We love rebellion by nature, every one of us. But when we look at the cross, we see where God has dealt with that sin and that wickedness and that rebellion and where the streams of his mercy flow. And that means we have every reason to have the same hope, or dare I say it this morning, more hope than Mary. Because we see how God has fulfilled those covenant promises in full. You know, one of the dangers of the secular holiday of Christmas is that we love the... Um, we love the often theologically inaccurate portrayals of what was happening around the manger, um, the, the narrative of the nativity, and, and we sentimentalize that. C.S. Lewis spoke of three Christmases, and one of those he said is, is the secular Christian Christmas. It's a sentimental, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's a uh, emotional, uh, it's an emotional wanting this warmth and this, this, this sense of goodwill and joy and peace and happiness. And, and Lewis says, but, but there is no peace. There is no joy. There is no real lasting happiness. I'm going to say this morning, there is no mercy unless the son of Mary goes to the cross. Unless he leaves the manger and is nailed to the tree. There is no mercy. But because he's done that, what Mary says ought to be flowing out of every one of our hearts and breaking out in every one of our songs. I want to ask you this morning, as we close, as you consider Mary's nativity hymn, when you think about the incarnation of the eternal Son, this human nature being knit together in the womb of the Virgin, does it cause you to break out in exultant praise. It ought to. We have every reason. God didn't do this for Mary. He did it for those he was redeeming. Um, you know, the psalmist says, praise befits the upright. Um, Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on Mary's praise, said, she sang this for one person, for Elizabeth. She was so full. Um, and then I want to ask you this morning, when you praise God, is that praise flowing from you being full of the word of God? The only reason that Mary could do this is because she was full of these things. And then I want to ask you, when you think about your relationship to the Lord Jesus, is the impulse of your mind and heart to say, Lord, I, I must go down. I must go down because you went down to the lowest place. I have every reason to go down. I have no reason to exalt myself. And then I want to ask you this morning, as you meditate on these things, is your response to end by singing that glorious, exultant hope that God has been merciful, that he's remembered his covenant, that he's provided the redemption that we need, that everything, as Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished, everything has been accomplished through the Lord Jesus. I hope that this will encourage you to follow the example of Mary by fixating on the son of Mary, the eternal son, knit together in her womb to hang on the tree, 
for our redemption, that we would humble ourselves, that we would praise him, and that we would hope in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you have given us this glorious, uh, exemplaristic song of Mary. We thank you, Lord, for the rich truths that flow from your revelation in the Old Testament. We thank you for the rich truths that flow from your fulfillment of all things in the fullness of time. And we thank you this morning that we can praise you, humble ourselves, and hope in you because we know what happened to the Son of Mary. And so, our God, would you work in every mind and heart in this place by your Spirit to help us to be a people that praise you, humble ourselves, and hope in the mercy that you have secured for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.